In the end, Chris Chibnall was right. There wasn't a story arc for Jodie Whittaker's first series of Doctor Who. There was a character arc, but who got to have it? We'll talk about that. And how this episode satisfied the mandatory Saving the Earth finale requirement on This Week in Time Travel. Hi, everyone. This is Chip. This is Alyssa. And this is the end of Series 11. Woohoo! We did it! <laughs> we did it, but it's over. And Yes, it's over, but there's New Year's Day. Yeah, and then, well, we'll get to that, but it's... Uh, I am <laughs> dissatisfied. Oh, uh, no! Chip's uh, coming in to satisfy. Dissatisfied and entitled. God damn it, I want more. But we'll get to that. <laughs> I... I I will tell you right off the bat. Today is our review of the Battle of Ransur of Kalas. Did I get the name right? Did I? Not even close, but I'm not going to attempt it, so no one can judge me on that. (sighs) This was the Battle of Awkwardly Long Name. It satisfied me, and it didn't satisfy me. It ticked a lot of the boxes for a finale, and it made me feel really good, and yet there were some parts that seem to lack nutritious elements. Yeah, I think, you know, I did not end this series on quite the high note that I was hoping for. It certainly didn't open quite as impressively as the series premiere did, but I didn't hate it either. So let's untangle this a little bit, starting with the villain, Tim Shaw returns. Chip, what did you think of him in round two? Well, I thought that as he would hasten to correct us zim shah was a fairly effective villain for the first episode of the series he looked a little power rangery as i said at the time and he looks no less power rangery this time around but it was interesting having it trailed for us that the 13th doctor was going to recognize the evil voice And it was either going to be a big Chris Chibnall fake out that it was going to be Davros or it was going to be Susan, because it's always going to be Susan, right? But the smart money was that everything's self-contained. And yes, it's going to be the bad guy who showed up in episode one and was name checked in episode two. He did what it was supposed to do. I mean, he was a mean bad guy. He was a through and through bad guy. He was not redeemable like many of the bad guys this time around. But he was there simply to be the bad guy. That was his only purpose other than to have a grudge against the doctor. I think that he was a little bit more interesting this time around. You've got very old, decrepit, being kept alive through impossible means, villain who has been ruminating on his defeat and on his vengeance for over 3,000 years. There's some interesting things to go there. And I mean, I really think that we have to give kudos uh, to the actor Samuel Oatley because That was actually a really good performance, acting-wise. I mean, he's working with all of this prosthetic. He's dealing with a villain who could very easily slide into total over-the-top ridiculousness. And it was actually a kind of understated, I have been marinating on this grudge for millennia, and it just oozing hatred out of him. So that was actually kind of like really well done, you know, like kudos to him, very well acted. But there's just not a lot for Tim Shaw to do 
this time around, and I'm not pronouncing his name correctly. It's just Tim Shaw. That's how we are going to do this. Um, and it's kind of awful what he's doing. He is just unredeemably awful. He's a person who does not want to reflect on his life or his choices or understand that his current situation is entirely of his own making. So it's kind of fun to play around with that. But after all of the menace of episode one, he's taken down rather easily by Graham and Ryan. He's shot in the foot. He's shot in the foot. And like, there's there's too much of an easy joke about how he shot himself in the foot there. And his punishment is rather fitting and brings things full circle and is great. But it's kind of underwhelming how easily he's taken down. Yeah. This season has not been about epic battles between the Doctor and a supervillain, by and large. She's had her moments against villains here and there, but generally speaking, I do actually prefer this pivot that Chris Chibnall has made to complexities and the doctor sort of against the environment or fixing the situation rather than opposing the bad guy. But somehow this does feel a little weaker because, in part... The Doctor goes off to fix the problem, and it falls to other characters to confront the villain. I wouldn't necessarily even say falls to, because I think what happens in that climactic moment really comes down to the crux of my problem with this entire series – That's really the hero moment of this episode. There's a lot of technological gobbledygook. The Doctor is working with several different types of technology and magical people who can sort of recreate time and space as we know it. And holy hell, how are these people not worshipped as like quasi-gods? And she puts the planets back in their proper location and saves the Earth. But the hero moment is that confrontation with Tim Shaw. That's the, the clash of values and ideals there. And that is, you know, really the moment in which you are taking a stand against the sort of injustice that this villain has been wrecking throughout the season. And it's Graham who gets that hero moment. It's Graham who has that moment where his emotional arc sort of comes full circle and is completed. You know, he's the guy who was a very reluctant participant in all the shenanigans in episode one, who becomes a companion of the doctor traveling through time and space. He's the grieving widower who decides not to take vengeance against the person responsible for his wife's death. And that's really the hero moment, not any of solving the problem and putting the planets back in space. The moment where the villain loses because ultimately the types of values he espouses are wrong and should be rejected. It kind of goes back to my point that I've been talking about a little bit for the past few episodes here is that so much time is being spent on the character arcs of Graham and to a certain extent, Ryan, and there's almost no emotional and character arc to the Doctor and Yaz during this season. That's a big moment and it belongs to Graham. That emotional full coming circle, that belongs to Graham and Ryan and not the Doctor. And there's nothing really happening with Yaz. So it's it's a little annoying. Yeah. This feels like a bit of a throwback to the classic series that there were moments when classic doctors had character arcs or character beats. You get one plastered over the third doctor for Planet of the Spiders, your favorite episode. Tom Baker has his 
do I have the right moment in Genesis of the Daleks? You know, there are moments where the Doctor must struggle with stuff. Uh, Patrick Chowton and the War Games. You know, a lot of these things seem to happen in the Doctor's final episodes in the classic series. But for the most part, the job of the Doctor in the classic series was to be a hero. And there is sort of a box put around the Doctor. And the Doctor's job is to be protagonist and nothing else. I see what you're saying. But I think this is also sort of kind of really more of a fundamental difference between television of those eras, because Classic Who spans several television eras, and sort of what we expect from modern day dramas. And the Doctor having a character arc in the modern series is really kind of a result of the what we expect from protagonists of modern day dramas, that they need to have more of those series long character and emotional arcs to them. So I, I guess there's an argument to be made there, but I don't really think it's so much a pivot to the classic model of the Doctor as it is there was a character with what we expect to have from a protagonist in a drama series in modern television. It just wasn't the Doctor. Well, it was one of her companions. I'm not saying that it's necessarily a conscious choice, and I'm not saying that it's a strong choice because television has moved on. But it, it does feel to me that for both the Doctor and for Yaz, their job is merely to be the hero, the righteous person doing the right things and solving the problem, saving the day. That doesn't compare favorably to the 12th Doctor's character arc in his three series or the 10th Doctor struggling with the attachment issues and stuff like that. The 13th Doctor is enjoyable to watch, clever and humane and empathetic and righteous and all of these wonderful things. And that is all to the good. And I'm enjoying the 13th Doctor. I'm enjoying what I'm getting, but I am wanting more. Yeah. And I get what you're saying with sort of the box around the hero, but I feel like that's something that we also expect our heroes to have those arcs with it. I simply feel like it's not like a box of a role that's been put in. It's just a less of investment in imagining what's going to be happening to this character. And I think it, it's just really unfortunate that in the first season with the first female doctor, with two companions of color that the primary focus on what are these characters thinking and feeling right now has really fallen onto the white man in this this season. And I don't think that was a conscious choice. I think that there's probably a lot of people who would strongly disagree with me on that. I just simply feel like this is my perspective on it. And I think there needs to be more conscious effort next season on giving equal character arcs to the other characters. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I tend to not see it as much with the Doctor because I just immediately sort of fall into that hero mode thing for the Doctor. I really do see it very clearly, though, with Yaz because she's just... She's there, but she's not there so much of the time this season. And here in this episode, the Battle of unbaked tiramisu that she, <laughs> that she just her character bit is to stick with the doctor that's basically her most her, her most noteworthy bit in this entire thing is like no i'm staying with you and of course she would because she's she's basically the doctor in training she is well, basically ace and yet 
No, not even no, not even Ace, because she's basically the exposition giver in this episode. She's sticking with the doctor because the doctor needs somebody to give so much exposition to in this episode. Like, it's let's not do a disservice to Ace here. Yaz's character ain't even rising to that level yet. I think I wrote in the show notes that Yaz is the Peggy of this episode, undeservedly. Yeah, she she really is. She really is. And I don't know why that is. I think Mandip Gill, when she's given stuff to work with, she's doing great. And when she's been given stuff to do, the character has stepped up. But you're right. Graham has taken up a lot of space. We have friends who are very much in the protect Graham at all costs category. And for them, the best thing in the world uh, all year was him having a big funny hat in the Witchfinders. It's I think it's the other character's turn. Yep. But if we are going to say that the character arc of his grief over Grace is finally come to a close, I do like the fact that Ryan's character arc sort of ramped up a little bit and sort of met him in the same place in this episode. The scene when Ryan was trying to talk Graham out of doing something stupid and reminded Graham that he started calling him granddad again and Graham's bitter enough, he says, well, so now you're doing it. That sort of back and forth between the characters. It felt earned like granddad felt earned to me last episode. I do feel like those character arcs were well served in the show. It's just that Yaz and the Doctor should have been given the same care. Yeah, uh, I think that Tosin Cole has done a fantastic job with Ryan this season. And this particular episode was a good strong moment for him because he's come to peace a little bit with what has happened to uh, his grandma. You know, he is not going to try to seek revenge, one, because he knows Tim Shaw is dangerous and that it's a fool's errand to go and try to kill him or anything like that. I think... He's also got a really good sense of sort of what his grandma would say of, Mm -hmm. nope, this is not what I want. I do not want you risking your life for some silly vengeance. Um, He's had life experience that Graham has not had in terms of having to govern his passions because of the hostility of the world around him. Yeah, I think there's that. I think there's also that he's not taking it quite as... I'm trying to find the right word for it. Um, We used the word selfish last time. Does it count? I think selfish might be a little bit appropriate. I think also personally, there's, I think Graham probably is feeling a little bit of guilt. There's uh, that entire moment of the first episode where Grace is really the one who's wanting to keep doing more, keep doing more to fight to save Ryan and Yaz and the doctor. And Graham is very reluctant, doesn't want to be going along with this, wants to be getting out of there. And Grace dies as a result. So there's probably some guilt of if I had done more, if I had gone up there instead of Grace, maybe she'd be alive. There's that whole conversation in the first episode of she should be here and I shouldn't be. So I think there's a lot of sort of personal guilt wrapped up in the losing of grace for him, which can sort of explain that. But I think the line that I latched onto in this episode, probably not for the reasons they wanted me to was, you know, 
Brian's asking Graham, do you think she would want this? And Graham's replying, she doesn't want to be dead. And that's sort of how I feel. I just kind of feel like, again, we have based the entire character arc of these two characters on the brutal death of a woman in the first episode who, yeah, she should be here. She was a fascinating, interesting character. And we have just dragged out the grief of her death over an entire series to provide a character arc to move these two male characters forward. You know, I had some wild ideas earlier in the season about what could potentially be happening, about whether Grace could ever come back. You and me both. Um, you and me both. We we kept coming close to sharing them on this podcast. We did, and we held off so many different times for so many different reasons. And in the end, it wasn't happening at all. Like, there was going to be no return of Grace. Um, um, this is she she is just well and truly dead and that character will probably not be coming back except for flashbacks um if even those happen in the future so uh i kind of stand by my feelings in the first episode of we have just fridged this female character to provide a you know series long character arc for two other male characters one of whom doesn't really want to be here oi um we sound very negative about this episode i think because I have stronger feelings about the reasons why I dislike this episode than about reasons why I like it. It's a fine enough episode. I just think it sort of is the point in which I can share a lot of my frustrations about <laughs> things that have been bothering me for the past couple of episodes that I didn't want to go quite as hard on because I didn't know what was going to happen in the finale episode and whether that would change my feelings on them. And it has not changed my feelings. So congratulations, you all get all of my feelings right now. It was a finale episode, and as we said in the show opener, traditionally finale episodes tend to put the Earth or the universe at stake, and this was no exception. I did appreciate that the Doctor was coming to the rescue of the Earth. The 13th Doctor got these big stakes moments that all the other Doctors have had. There are explicit callbacks in this episode to the Russell T. Davis era. The towing of the earth back into place and journeys end and the end of Boomtown, the regenerating the Slitheen. Why in the hell do you name check the Slitheen in 2018? Because kids love the Slitheen. They're farting aliens. <laughs> I think that this was very much out of the Russell T. Davis playbook. I think it was pretty conscious of that. Maybe without the overwhelming sentimentality of the Russell T. Davis eras, but this felt like a throwback RTD finale, not a Stephen Moffat finale. There was no complicatedness to it. There was no tricksiness to it. It was big stakes, space opera. I'd say my biggest criticism of this episode as a finale was that aside from the fact that the Doctor solves the problem with gadgets and ingenuity... It felt like a space opera finale, not necessarily a Doctor Who finale, at least not the ones that we've become accustomed to in recent years. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I think it is a Doctor Who finale. It's just kind of the underwhelming ones. And I don't mean to sound rude or overly negative about that, but like, it's kind of pretty classic Doctor Who. There is a lot of space. There's a lot of exposition. There is a lot of interesting stuff sort of happening around there. I just think... The, the first series has kind of struggled along in some places, and uh, I think this is one of the spots in which it struggles. And hopefully now that everyone's 
done it for one turn. When we come back for the next season, everyone will uh, be at the top of their game and there'll be something a little bit more fleshed out for a series long arc. You know, it doesn't necessarily need to be a tricksy arc. It doesn't necessarily need to be some sort of complicated interwoven thing that comes up in every single episode. You know, we don't need to name check Bad Wolf in literally every single episode. But I think that they can bring together a little bit more of a more cohesive season. And yet, as the episode was wrapping up, I did have that sort of satisfied, warm feeling that I usually do have with a Doctor Who series finale. There may have been a lot of empty carbs in the episode, but I kind of felt full. I don't know. It was. It ends dramatically. It ends with fanfare. It ends with good endings for Graham and Ryan. It did what it needed to do in terms of following the Doctor Who format and concluding a series. Yeah, I think it could have done better. I I wasn't quite with that warm and happy feeling, but then I'll always have four or five different stories from this season to give me those warm and fuzzy feelings. Uh, and we still have New Year's Day coming up, which looks like it should be fun. Yeah, and then after New Year's Day. Oh, Alyssa, I am not in a good place right now. Why, Chip? Because that's going to be it for 2019. New Year's Day. The very first day of the year is also going to be the very last day of the year for new Doctor Who in 2019. The BBC announced it, and I am a grumpy, entitled, whiny boy. You're grumpy. I was feeling great about having Doctor Who premiere not in an election year. And guess what? Now Doctor Who is premiering in an election year. Can we get off the election year schedule, please? I work in electoral politics. This is inconvenient to me. Oh, I mean, they're, they're saying that it's going to come in early 2020. That means Do you prim- know what's in early 2020? Primary season. It's primaries. Not real, it, primary season is not the real election. You won't have any work to do. It is, in fact, a very real election in which I will hopefully be doing quite a bit of work. I'm in a panic, Chip. I'm in a panic. The argument has been made by good friends that Doctor Who is prestige TV right now. And prestige television doesn't turn out a whole lot of episodes and doesn't do an annual turnaround. And I'm not sure that I want it that way, frankly. This season... And we'll talk more about this season later on when we sort of recap the whole thing. But this season, I loved it. And I think that in many ways, my Doctor Who has come back to me to a certain extent. Something that I hadn't totally come to grips with, having felt like I'd lost when Stephen Moffat took over. Some of those aspects of it feel like they've come back to me. And yet, it was episodic television. It was lighter television. Aside from some key episodes, mainly historical ones, it was populist entertainment. Just 10 episodes of that doesn't feel like enough. And more than a year's gap between that and the next season doesn't feel like enough. We're just being selfish. Are we now? Yes, we are. Even with my whining, I do think this is deserved and frankly, not out of the ordinary from everything that we've seen previously. I'm not not saying that like it's Game of Thrones level, you know, because like that's a budget in which Doctor Who couldn't even dream of probably. 
But, you know, this is kind of normal and expected. Now, if we could get off the election year cycle, that would be great for me personally. But I'm not mad at it other than this seems like a personal and specific attack against me. I don't think it's a determined and specific attack against me personally either. However, I'm feeling some of the differences between American and British television here. And yeah, I think I would be taking this a little more calmly if Series 11 had been weightier. But okay, I I, I will try to be patient and I'll try to figure out what the hell we're going to talk about for the duration of 2019. We... This week on The Incomparable Network. On its 50th anniversary, it's time for the panelists to get their stinking paws on the classic Planet of the Apes on The Incomparable. Holiday Gingerbread Showdown, RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, It Must Be Monty and Rias' reality show recap, The Villain Edit. And let's get highbrow with A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn on Sophomore Lit. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. Thanks for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek. Chip is on Twitter at Two Minute Time Lord. That's the numeral two. And I'm on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. And you can also find this podcast on Facebook, too. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our original theme music, to David J. Lohr for our original podcast artwork. Please review us on Apple Podcasts. Consider becoming a member of the Incomparable Network and tell all your friends about us. We'll be back soon enough to recap the entire series and get ready for New Year's. Have a good holiday baking adventure, Alyssa. Five dozen cookies. Please kill me now. Bye-bye. This week on The Incomparable Network. On its 50th anniversary, it's time for the panelists to get their stinking paws on the classic Planet of the Apes on The Incomparable. Holiday Gingerbread Showdown? RuPaul's Drag Race? Wait a minute, we're doing this backwards. You started it, it's fine. We could just finish it at this point. I know, but uh, now I'm, I'm talking about Holiday Gingerbread and I thought you might have something clever to say. Not that's not swearing. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>